Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax and enjoy as you fall asleep. In this episode we are reading a publication entitled The Country House with designs by Monsieur de Chateauneuf and Sir Charles Locke Eastlake. In this book the architect, Chateauneuf, writes letters back and forth with his friend Eastlake where they discuss modern architecture in 1842. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. The Country House with Designs by Shadonuff and Eastlake. Preface Hitherto the contributions have appeared in a small volume, but a friend having furnished me with the manuscripts of the following letters, in order to do justice to the beautiful designs, it has been necessary to increase the size of the work. I trust that the merit of the drawings will reconcile my subscribers to the increased price. The observation on the style fittest for domestic architecture, the description of the proposed house and the designs are by Monsieur de Chateauneuf. To these, Mr. Eastlake kindly added a very valuable letter on the principles of interior decoration. Monsieur de Chateauneuf is already known in this country by his elegant work Architecture Domestica, and is designed for the new Royal Exchange, all who have visited Hamburg must be well acquainted with the refined taste which characterizes the buildings erected under his superintendence. It is, but justice to him, de enough to state that his letters were written merely as matter of amusement, and arose out of a discussion with a friend, as to which was the best style to be adopted for domestic architecture, the letters have been translated from the German and unfortunately have not had the advantage of being submitted to the writer for correction. It is proposed that the next volume should contain a reprint of the late Mr. Waitley's admirable work on modern gardening, this it is hoped will be considered as a fit companion to the country house. I take this opportunity of thanking Mr. C. Knight and Mr. Jackson, who kindly furnished me with the blocks from which the vignettes have been printed. Mary Fox Letter 1 Dear Sir, As I am about to build a new house, I have determined to avail myself of your assistance, should it be convenient to you to give it. I do not by so doing intend that it should be supposed I think that the many very intelligent architects in this country are incapable of giving me good advice, but independently of my friendship for you and great respect for your talents, I wish to consult one who is not likely to be so much wedded to the routine of modern Italian villas, Elizabethan houses, and thatched cottages. As is the case with most of our English professors, not that I mean to say anything in disparagement of a Palladian villa, always beautiful, though not always best suited to our climate. 
I am also fully sensible of many of the beauties of the old Elizabethan houses and also of some of the imitations of them and a small thatch cottage is very pretty. I shall begin by stating the sort of house we want and give a short description of the ground on which it is proposed to build it in order that you may in the first place give your notions as to the site and the style which you would recommend. On the style, perhaps you would give us your views in detail, pointing out, as far as your leisure and inclination will permit, the merits of each and which on the whole you prefer. As regards the ground, we have no park, but sufficient extent of land to make a large paddock very park-like. It would not suit our views to have a park. The situation is not romantic, but as the ground is poor and wild, we shall command more ornament than profit. To the north or northwest there is a rising terrace, well sheltered with high trees. This slopes down for about a quarter of a mile into the valley of the Cray. The aspect is therefore southeast, and this comes best according to the slope of the ground. If you prefer that the house should stand high, you may have in front a good terrace of at least 200 yards long and 8 feet high. If lower down the hill, halfway, the terrace will not be so good, but there will be better shelter from the north wind, and at the back there will be rising ground, through which the walks of the pleasure ground may be conducted, and still the house will be well above the valley. In front, looking over this valley, and across some fine orchards, for which Kent is celebrated, and some waving fields of corn, there is a mass of wood on a rising hill, about equal to the hill on which we are situated. On the right there is a fine view of Knockle Beaches. In the valley there is the town of Footscray, seen through the orchard at about half a mile distant. And by a little dexterous cutting and leveling we shall be able to get a glimpse of the small winding river. On the right of the hill on which we are to build, there is a small spring at present rising in some swampy ground covered with alders. This we propose to clear and shall be enabled, if you think it worthwhile, to enlarge into a small sheet of water. With this general view, you will see that we are well off as to aspect, have woods in the distance, and a valley of no great beauty indeed, but still a valley with a quiet stream and this is always pleasing. I think it may be considered as a fair average specimen of English scenery such as is met with in the southern counties. Now as regards the house, there must be a good dining room, a good general morning room which will serve as drawing room and a large library, one or two small rooms in which to receive persons on business. As regards bedrooms, offices, and such. This will be matter of future consideration when we have settled the important matter of sight and style. I should, however, mention that, as circumstances may make it desirable to add to the size, it will be advisable that there should be that irregularity in the plan as will admit of this, so that it may be in the end a house costing from £10,000 to £12,000. With respect to the offices, I think we make a great mistake in England as we manage to hide them and lose all the benefit of increasing the size and importance of the house by these additions. I know, however, this is a very difficult point to manage 
and merely throw it out for your consideration. The general building material in this part of the country is brick, though we are enabled, at no very great cost, to get some stone for window or door frames, and such. I have been reading a little about the sites of ancient villas, but shall not trouble you with my views until I receive your answer. Recollect we have a bad and variable climate, though we go out as much in the winter as summer, so that there must be at once shelter from the sun for our short summer, and warmth and shelter during the long winters and cold springs. H. B. Letter 2. For your letter, accept my thanks. It is doubly flattering to me, being a foreigner, to be commissioned to make the designs for the country house you intend to build. Yet while I derive great satisfaction from the task, I am impressed with the difficulties attending it, one of which is that I am at present prevented by business from discussing the matter with you in person and am therefore compelled to put my ideas upon paper. Simple as the commission appears, it however involves considerations of some moment and which render it necessary that I should previously state to you my opinion in detail in regard to the style I propose to adopt. I have not forgotten what you once said to me, namely, that in order to make himself intelligible to others, it is essential that the artist should be clear as to his own meaning. I even suspect that opinions once defined, if not clearly and sincerely put down, may lead to misapprehension, and inasmuch as they commit the person who gives them to the misleading of the artist himself. You invite me, however, to give my opinion, and having freely stated the difficulties of the undertaking, I begin with more confidence. What then, with a view to your individual taste, is the style I would recommend as most suitable for the intended situation and purpose? And if such a question has now become not an uncommon one, you must allow that, 60 years ago, no one would have thought of proposing it to an architect for his consideration. Every architect would then have at once answered it by saying, in that style which is in general use and according to my own particular views of it, or during any of the various epochs of the art, would anyone have thought of suggesting to a Greek, an Italian, or native of the north of Europe, etc. to build in any other style than that belonging to their respective countries? It ought also to be borne in mind that if we occasionally meet with an intermixture of styles, it is only in buildings of transition periods during the change from one mode to another and such periods were of only short duration because the previous style had already outlived itself. Circumstances are now totally altered. We recognize and practically adopt various styles indiscriminately, nor is it difficult to explain how it happens that we now employ one and then another. For this, two reasons may be assigned. The first, a very meritorious one, is that we with a generalizing view anxiously study and investigate the most difficult examples of art. The second reason, however, is of a very unsatisfactory nature, which is that in our weak hands no style has been so naturalized among us as to constitute a permanent canon by which to regulate the modifications of any and every architectural purpose. 
This is the cause of that indecision of style which manifests itself more or less in modern edifices and of that changeableness of taste which has hitherto hindered us from establishing the art upon fixed principles regulated according to the high requisites which our modern cultivation requires. We seem to be of opinion that variety of character is attainable only by variety of style, hence our museums are classically antique, our churches after the mode of the Middle Ages, and so forth, according as the buildings happen to belong to the class in which any particular period was most distinguished for buildings of that class. The character of such examples strikes us by its expressiveness, nor do we find it difficult, with models before us that we are now acquainted with and understand, to produce the same kind of effect and expression by merely copying their physiognomy and style. He, however, who is well grounded in the study, is aware that at different periods the art was treated according to its own principles as resulting from different modes of culture, and that consequently the adoption of a style previously discarded, though it may suit the vitiated taste of the artist, as the oat gout pleases the fastidious palate of the epicure, yet it can never be pleasing to a really cultivated taste. You may think me somewhat fantastical, but it appears to me that we cannot read Homer with perfect relish in a saloon a la Louis Quators, or Shakespeare beneath the roof of a Grecian impluvium, and that it is only with the character of the surrounding forms and objects in some degree accord, at least do not harshly contrast with our mental occupation, that we can fully abandon ourselves to the imaginings of genius. I might, however, without impropriety, substitute character for style in the question you put to me, and my answer would then be, let it be as noble and as cheerful as possible. Still the making a distinction between style and character does not entirely get rid of the difficulty, for a person who is as intelligent as you are in matters of art will say, even if you hit the character, the mere desire to invent an appropriate style does not of itself satisfy me, and on this account I wish you to state more explicitly which of former styles you intend mainly to select. This I will now attempt to do, and begin by stating it as my opinion that the most perfect architectural style is that which admits at the same time of a refined style both of sculpture and of painting, that which, while it serves as the vehicle of graceful embellishment, can maintain an equal excellence in itself. Such, as it appears to me, is the ideal which an architect of the present day ought to keep in his mind's eye. Yet before we proceed to inquire which of the principal styles we are acquainted with possesses such a quality in the most eminent degree, it will be proper to consider what is the kind of relationship which the three separate arts of architecture, painting, and sculpture bear to each other. According to the usual metaphor, the consanguinity is that of sisterhood. Yet in my opinion this is somewhat incorrect. In its origin and development, every organic style of architecture has preceded the other two arts, consequently the relationship in which it stands to them may more properly be termed maternal, it being under our fostering protection that they have afterwards grown up, nor would it be difficult to exemplify this sort of connection between the three arts by instances taken from different styles of architecture and one who has applied himself to studying the motives and principles governing that.
formation of those different styles will easily follow me in my remarks. The two daughter arts were unknown to or did not exist for the earliest Asiatic architecture, on which account, imposing as its gigantic remains are, they oppress the mind by the feeling they excite of stern and monstrous vastness. In the Egyptian style, the growth of the children arts appears to have been stunted and repressed by the servitude in which they were kept, nor have any later race or nation attempted to rival the massiveness of its edifices tattooed over with hieroglyphics. It is only in the genuine architecture of ancient Greece itself and in the Italian style of the 15th century that we meet with all the three arts growing up to completeness together and as is universally acknowledged, brought to a very high degree of refinement and perfection. Notwithstanding the long continued progressive formation and manifold development of Gothic architecture that style failed to attach to and as it were to incorporate with itself the two kindred arts which were checked both by unfavorableness of climate and by war and political disturbances. Architecture was therefore compelled to trust chiefly to its own power and resources, employing sculpture and painting merely as subordinate decoration. And who shall say that this style, so full of creative power, would not have preserved itself more pure, have avoided falling into the cold and gloomy on the one hand, the bizarre and overloaded on the other, could it have availed itself of the assistance of sculpture and painting so that they should have accompanied it in all the varieties of its times and developments? This was to an extent the case with Arabian architecture, which, both in regard to the dominion it obtained and its organization, has many points of similarity with the nearly contemporary Gothic style, notwithstanding the marked distinctions which prevail between them. This reminds me of the remark of a poetical friend who once said to me, like a rainbow on the horizon of art, Gothic architecture stretches itself across Europe from Byzantium to Portugal, while Arabian architecture may be compared to its reflection, somewhat flattened however, commencing from the same point and crossing along the north coast of Africa till it reaches Spain or to a reflection in the water whose wavy surface occasions some little difference of appearance, and in fact we behold both styles united together in the amphibious city of Venice. This simile would be more literally appropriate had the uses to which the two styles were applied been more nearly alike. As regards Arabian architecture, the parent art may be said to have been entirely childless, depending entirely on its own resources, discarding all representation of animal life, whether in painting or sculpture. With respect to modern architecture, it may be said that it has quite rejected the services of the other two arts and, as I fear, greatly to its own detriment, while these latter arts, notwithstanding the eminence they have attained apart from architecture, are not so solidly united as they otherwise would be, nor capable of so completely developing their powers had the union of the three been complete. It is well known that, owing to the fetters imposed upon them in Egypt by the religion of the people and its priesthood, it was only in Europe that sculpture and painting could at different epochs attain to maturity. But it is not perhaps so generally known or considered 
that it is one characteristic mark of European architecture that it has at all times, whether those of its progress and advancement or its decline availed itself of natural forms, both vegetable and animal, for purposes of decoration, while the Asiatic styles were confined to geometrical figures for the ornaments. The above cursory glance at the history of the art may at least serve to shew how incumbent it is upon the architect of the present day to make himself acquainted with the creative power and processes of his art by studying them as they actually manifest themselves at different epochs and according to the different views and purposes to which the art was applied. By so doing, however, he is in some danger of being worked upon by conflicting impressions occasioned by the diversity of styles and the opposite tastes they exhibit. Yet, unless I am greatly mistaken, the whole system of the art, as developed in the different styles, must henceforth have considerable influence upon our modern architecture. Limiting our views for the present to those architectural productions in which a union with the other arts is more directly attainable, we find Grecian or early Italian architecture the predominating style. The last grafted on the former may be said to be more or less complete in the greater or less proportion in which it derives its nourishment from the parent stem. If we look, for example, to the progress or course of painting in Italy, that art flourished there in proportion to the nourishment it derived from the antique. The works of Montaigne, M. Angelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and Raphael bear testimony to this, and those great men would probably have attained to a higher degree of excellence had they been as well acquainted with the sculptures of the Parthenon and the Greek bronzes as they were with the works of the Romans. Most assuredly, a knowledge of the architecture of the time of Pericles or of that of Pompey would not have been without its influence upon such men as Bramante, San Gallo, and Baldassor Peruzzi, nor have failed of being turned to account by them. Observe, however, that this remark is not intended to depreciate what they actually accomplished, nor to disparage the style which they formed. These explorers had unquestionably discovered new veins in the rich mine which had been opened by the Greeks, as the Romans, who were the immediate imitators of the Greeks, had already extended the one first of all worked. In all subsequent operations, as in what the French termed the Renaissance style, nothing more was done than to go on excavating, seldom, however, with sufficient pains or caution so as to separate completely the gold from the dross. When, therefore, I propose to make a design in the Greek style, I wish you to observe that I understand by this term of striving after the purity of this canon, but at the same time with a reserved right to the free use of those modes and motives with which later European architecture supplies us. If a determinate name must be given to the style, I propose I should call it the Renaissance style of the 19th century. But many may say, how conveniently he contrives to get rid of the Gothic architecture, while others will exclaim, according to such principles, a very pretty sort of medley is likely to be produced. In answer to the first set of objections, I reply, if you can introduce modern sculpture and painting into Gothic architecture without prejudice to them or it, I will say that you have attained a great end. 
To the others, I should reply, you misunderstand or pervert my meaning. I have not spoken of a merely mixing up of different styles, but of compounding them together, between which two processes there is, I conceive, a wide difference, the ingredients being merely put together in the one case, without losing their respective qualities, while in the other they amalgamate with each other and produce an entirely new combination. And it is in accomplishing combinations of this kind that the power of genuine art manifests itself and the distinction may be likened to the difference between a mechanical and a chemical combination. Nor are some compound styles of architecture less beautiful than others which are quite unmixed. I know not whether these remarks will prove of much service to you, but I trust they will at least enable you, after seeing where my views generally on the subject, to make your own suggestions in return for my further guidance. I am A. C. Letter 3 Dear Sir, Thanks for your letter in answer to mine, or rather in part answer to it, for you have confined yourself solely to a discussion of the style to be selected. A subject which has hitherto, I think, not been sufficiently considered, at least in England. I believe that amateurs order a Grecian Palladian or Elizabethan house without having much speculated on what are the different merits or demerits of each, but merely with reference to some one example which may be in their recollection and which may have pleased them or what is often the case, they submit to be guided by the bent of their architect, who in general are wedded to some particular favorite style. Thus, we have Mr. All Gothic and Elizabethan, Mr. All Italian, with a dash of the Byzantine, Renaissance, etc. I am, I am, much pleased as well as instructed by this discussion, and I hope you will not consider me as intruding too much upon your time and patience if I venture to seek further elucidations of some of the positions in your letter. I quite agree it is clear that as yet we have a style to choose, and that in future ages, no architect will be able to apply any definite character to our present mode of building. I must, however, premise what indeed my letter will fully prove that your partiality has induced you to give me credit for greater knowledge in matters of art, especially as regards architecture, than I possess. I agree that the style which best admits of being combined with the sister arts, or filial if you please, of painting and sculpture must be the one to adopt, and that it is clear their union is always a mutual improvement. It seems you come to the conclusion that the pure Greek style of architecture is that which best admits of this union. Now, as regards domestic architecture, I am not sure that I have any very clear perception of what is pure Greek style. I suspect our notion as regards a house of pure Greek style is a cube of building of mock stone with a portico, if a large house, or if a small one, with some thin paste-like pilasters and a certain number of parallelogram holes cut into the walls for windows with two smaller cubes for wings and, in the inside, a repetition of the outside in the shape of the rooms, that is, two oblong rooms for dining and drawing rooms, with an oblong hall placed the other way, 
the usual accompaniment of folding doors and two or three small and often dark rooms at the back. There are certainly some changes run on these forms, but the theme is always the same. I call Sir Smree's post office a gigantic small Grecian house. I am aware that the Palladian improvements or additions, whichever you will, have multiplied the resources and have given us much to delight, namely the circular dome, pillars, and gallery, and the consequent change in the disposition of the apartments. I mention these points to let you see the nakedness of the land and trust your kindness for better instruction. You assume that the Grecian style is the best adapted to pictorial and sculptural decoration, but I do not see the reason of this. In fact, without a more precise definition of what you mean by Greek style as adapted to domestic architecture, I do not see how this can be shown. You state that the Gothic style is not so well adapted to the union with the filial arts and that hitherto when so used they were subordinate only. I shall be the more ready to agree when I have some further exposition on this point. Though not so distrustful as our royal society who adopt Malayas and Verba as their motto, yet cling to an old monkish law maxim of Lord Coke, I may say of your position what he says of law, lex plus laudator quando ration probator. I am aware that the Gothic churches are often overloaded with ornament and that the sculpture often seems as if merely stuck on and the pictures are hung up as ornaments, not as part and parcel of the building, and, I believe, that tapestry was often called an aid to decorate our cathedrals, and with great effect, but is it of necessity so? Are there no exceptions? At all events, it is not so in the Byzantine style, which approaches so nearly to the Gothic, and, as regards the Arabian, take for instance the Alhambra, the fair daughters unite in great harmony with their beautiful mother. You have besides omitted, I think, one point in which Gothic architecture has been gravely aided by the pictorial art, namely, the painted windows. With hues romantic tinge the gorgeous pane, to fill with holy light this wondrous fane, to aid the builder's model richly rude, by no Vitruvian symmetry subdued. I begin to feel that it is probable I have entirely mistaken what you mean by Grecian style and that it does not preclude the use of arches, groin ceilings, domes, etc. I have been the more diffuse on this point because I only have a leaning to what we have called Elizabethan, conceiving, whether true or not, that there is more fitness in it for domestic architecture than in the Grecian style, that the regularity and repetition of form which in a great building is delightful, in a small one does not please from the diminutive size of the objects. And, again, as regards the material and color, as we use Grecian style in this country, the material is either white stone or white stucco, which in our climate appears cold and does not give half so much the notion of warmth and comfort as the fine rich toned red brick and what refers to the exterior is perhaps equally applicable to the interior. Although in a building on a grand scale the mind is pleased with symmetry and regularity, 
and little this is irksome and gives the notion of poverty. In fact, too soon lets you into the secret of the whole house. There is no surprise, no discovery to make. Shoot me a Palladian villa a mile off and I could draw you the plan of the inside at once. Indeed, I could walk blindfolded into the drawing room, dining room, library, and boudoir and go up to bed in the best bedroom without a guide or a light. Here are no rich windows that exclude the light and passages that lead to nothing. A good deal also, I am willing to own, arises from association and national prejudices. Some of our most delightful houses are built in this style and they have, at all events within, signs of harmony in the style of decoration and in the accessories. The gardens and outbuildings were often made more appropriate and better suited to the house than in any other architectural attempts that we have made and, I believe, no Englishman ever fancied building a house that did not have the large bay window and the large fireplace against all principles of good grades and are not stoves, I admit, and the low groin passage and the paneled hall in his mind. But it seems you think it most difficult, or rather say coy than willing. I beg you will not suppose I am opposing your views. All I mean is to canvas and to be sure that I understand them. I have to repeat that I agree entirely that the style is best which is most susceptible of uniting the three arts, but I only wish to know why the Greek is most susceptible and what is the kind of sculpture and painting you wish to unite in order to see that such a union is suitable to our climate and can be obtained at a reasonable cost, for you must bear in mind that I want to build a country house, not a palace. It is a long time since I was in Italy and when I was there I did not pay so much attention to architecture as I should do if I were to go over the same ground again now that I have got a house to build, but there is a strong impression on my mind that the other parts of Europe may rival or surpass us in palaces and grand architectural monuments, yet that there is no country which would present so many good hints in domestic architecture as England, always referring to the great points convenience and comfort for I own as fitness is the guiding principles of all perfection in building I concede it essential in purely domestic architecture that a character of fitness for habitation and comfort should always be prominent I am a great admirer of Balzac and I think one of his best descriptions of still life is the account of the house in his Recherche de l'Absolu it is so good that I should be tempted if it were not too long for a letter to copy and send it to you as a model, if not of what a house should be, at least of how one should be described. Yours, etc. H.B.